Okay. Welcome to the Heart on Fire podcast. I'm your host, Marie Cuisan. And without further ado, I would like to welcome onto the show, Rick Pamplin. Welcome, Rick. Thank you very much, Marie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's It's been probably such a roller coaster of a journey um, to get to where you've been. And um, I know that you have a, a work in progress and it's already out there. Um, I just want to cut to the chase. Movie Money. Um, how has that been for you? Yeah, just so uh, our mutual friend Scott DuPont doesn't yell at me. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> here's here's my new film. It's called Movie Money Confidential with Burt Reynolds, his last movie, Salma Hayek. It shows people how you raise money to make independent films is basically the shortest plot summary I could give you. Okay. Uh, we interviewed um, over 60 people. Um, everybody from lawyers to fundraisers, the financiers, to movie stars, actors, producers, uh, lawyers, um, and the woman who created the Blair Witch Project with a business plan. And we have like the original true story of how that was made, which has never been told. So hmm. it's a great film and you can see it for free for a limited time if you go to moviemoney.com. And we're on all of these wonderful sites like Tubi and Freebie and Hoopla, one of my favorite streaming channels, which is for people that have a library card, where you can see the movie without commercials on Hoopla, or if you don't mind some, you know, a commercial interruptions, you can see it. We're on a number of these channels. Uh, and you can see it on the more traditional Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So moviemoney.com. And that's the end of plugs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to plug that it's out on DVD. Right. I'm not going to plug that it's based on this book, which now has my movie on the cover, Filmmakers of Financing. No more plugs. That's yeah, it. No more plugs. Or Take even these things away. Let's, have a, great, <laughs> you let's said, have a great inspiring conversation now. You, you sent me a, a photo uh, about how somebody showed you they were on a plane. I don't even know where they were heading. And they're like, oh, yeah, I see your project. I'm like, so that's great. That's so well, great. this is this is a first for me. In the post-pandemic world, a lot of things have changed in movie distribution and filmmaking. And so one of the biggest audiences we're finding are people on airplanes. Mm -hmm. And American Airlines purchased our film. And we're in with a lot of very big, big movies. And I'm being told we're doing great. And we're getting people who literally, there was a gentleman on a flight from Milan, Italy to New York, mm -hmm. saw the film on the airplane, called up Louise Levinson, who wrote the book that the film is inspired by, and hired her to write a business plan for a project he was doing while he was in flight. She's had five calls. So somebody wow. the other day, who's a passenger on American Airlines, sent us these pictures which I put on LinkedIn and Twitter and whatever, sure. of our movie on the, the menu for all of the, the, the movies on the plane. And he was watching our movie on the plane. And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. So today you stream your movies, whether it's, you know, people pay money, whether they're on a premium streaming service, whether they get it for free right. uh, or they're on an airplane. You know, it's a different world now. And we're just finding that through Twitter and through LinkedIn, both of which I'm on, that we're, we're interfacing with, you know, other filmmakers, um, other document 
documentarians, I guess would be the word, mm -hmm. and fans, people that just want, you know, to film. I was on LinkedIn the other day. Okay. And I know a big part of your podcast and your theme is inspirational, which is why I'm so thrilled to be here. But Absolutely. I got a, I got a, uh, 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 whatever they call it, a message on LinkedIn. And a guy said, I'm a record producer and I'm not pitching you anything. I don't know you, but I loved your movie. Hmm. And it's inspired me in my work and it's changed my life. That's and so that, you know, that's kind of the, the thing that we like to do. A lot of people have written me letters or emails or DMs or whatever and said, I saw your movie. I'm not really that interested in film financing or the movie business, but what your movie sort of inspires me to do is to go for my dreams. Mm. And as you know, in the movie, I'm very candid about the fact that, you know, when I went out to Hollywood, it was a very closed society, very yeah. hard to get into. And you want to do good. Absolutely. You, you, know, you want to get jobs. You, mm -hmm. you want to write your parents, hey, I'm okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, you want to, you know, you want to let friends and family know that when you left everything in your home, you, you weren't crazy, that you, you belong in the movie business. Mm -hmm. So I felt in my career, I had made some compromises along the way mm -hmm. that I really regret. And I did it because I had to have a roof over my head and ultimately provide for my son and my family and, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, you kind of give up your dreams. You kind of compromise away things. Mm -hmm. And as I got older and left Hollywood and came to Florida, first to Universal Studios and now to Palm Beach, what do I care what Hollywood says? If I can make movies and find an audience, I don't necessarily have to go through Hollywood. Right. And so the movie was an outgrowth of sometimes when really bad things happen. Mm -hmm. God, if you believe in God, and I do, but if you don't, then fate will open up some doors for you on the other side. And my wife and I were unfairly sued by a very wealthy woman. We had three projects in development and we had raised the development fund, we'd signed an Oscar winner to star in the three films. We were rolling along, and I do not know why, but this woman sued us and these three development companies. And it the, the way the legal system works, it takes four or five years to get to court. Mm -hmm. You don't just go in and say, well, this isn't true, here's the contract. You have to go through discovery and motions. And and it was, it, it was this woman who had enormous amounts of money Mm -hmm. And we spent all the money we had in our businesses. And then my wife and I had to start putting up our personal money. So for five years, I was unable to make a movie. And for five years, I was being maligned and smeared on the internet and in the courtroom and in motions. And there were three lawsuits and nine counts filed against me. Hmm. And ultimately, we won. All three lawsuits so were dismissed. All counts were dismissed. We showed tax returns. We did depositions. We showed them everything. Not one penny was misspent. Not one clause in any contract was violated. But, you know, there's a saying in the legal system, how much justice can you afford? Mm. Because to prove yourself innocent takes a lot of money. Right. So we were about $50,000 in debt. We had sold jewelry, artwork. We even sold furniture. Wow. Anything we could to keep us alive and not go bankrupt. Because if I went bankrupt, 
all the investors in those development funds would lose all their money. Right. And I felt an obligation to not let that happen. Right. Because at the beginning, the lawyer said, and this is a problem in life. You know, people run to bankruptcy as an excuse. And I did that once. And I wish I never would have done it. But I, I did declare bankruptcy one time. And it was over some crazy lawsuits and stuff happening. And it was just sure. easier to declare the bankruptcy and save my house and start over. the keyword. It's easier. Yes. So we took the hard road this time. Mm -hmm. And I tried to listen to my heart. And I tried to do the right thing to protect the people that believed in me. Mm -hmm. And so we persevered. And we ended up about $50,000 in debt. Wow. And I called all my friends. Hey, I'm back and these suits were dismissed and I can send you a copy and it's publicly posted. And nobody would call me back. Nobody returned my emails. And I called this guy, Scott DuPont, this mutual friend you and I have. Yes. And I said, Scott, I, I uh, you know, and he had been very supportive during the lawsuit. He knew I'd done nothing wrong. We'd worked on a lot of projects together. And in the end, in show business or any business, it's all about friendships and relationships. Mm -hmm. that's what saves you yeah. you can have faith because faith gave me the faith replaced fear mm -hmm. so i was able to fight we were literally in a david and goliath I love that. and so the faith took care of the fear mm -hmm. but the connections in my lifetime of having an industry uh and having a, a career in that industry was over right and i called scott and I pitched him the idea for the movie. And in 20 minutes, we had a deal. Wow. And we went to an individual um, who we had worked with. And he said, well, I'll give you all the money. Don't worry, I'll fund the film. And it went on for two or three months. It turned out he decided not to. He decided to invest in marijuana factories. Huh. So uh, there went the money. But Scott, to his credit, for two years, never gave up. We had completely run out of money. We were going to the bank once a month, taking a cash advance on a credit card, praying that the bank wasn't going to cut off our credit line. Right. Because I had perfect credit. I had a lot of credit cards. And I had run quite a bit of money through banks. But, you know, banks are all about cash flow. Yeah. All banks are, all, you know. So I had never taken a cash advance in my life. Okay. So once a month, you know, could we go another month? Right. And we kept thinking, well, next month, Scott will raise two years, two years. Persistence. Yes. Inspiration without persistence is worthless. Fair. You must be persistent. Got so it. we uh, stayed with it. Scott raised the money from a large group of investors, some of whom I knew and some of whom I didn't know. And we got the film made. Oh. And it completely turned my life around. I immediately, once you have a movie coming out, Everybody wants to hire you. I did consulting jobs. I did some writing jobs. I sold a, a, a TV pilot. So all of a sudden, in a very short time, the five years that we had gone through and the two years of waiting, the seven years was over, mm -hmm. and we were able to get ourselves out of debt, which we are now, yes. and get ourselves back on our feet. So sure. uh, never discount any. I met Scott in 1994 in Orlando, Florida. Okay, wow. He's a Hollywood producer and an actor, and I'm a Palm Beach independent filmmaker. Right on. And in my moment of desperation and need, 
I reached out and found him. So never, ever, ever, ever discount what one friendship can do for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we made the movie. It was very successful and it has expanded. So then um, our distributor wanted us to make another film. You know, mm -hmm. people wanted us to make a sequel. People called me for all these films. And I realized there nobody, nothing blows up in this film. Nobody's shot. There's nothing that's could it at all be inferred as sexist or racist. It's just the opposite. Nothing lewd. Yeah. Right. Nothing lewd, nothing obscene. And I realized I don't really ever want to do that kind of stuff again. So people called me up and offered me movie projects and TV shows. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it. So we developed a second film, which I'm editing. In fact, tonight I'm seeing the fifth cut. Right on. So I'm editing a new feature film. We've already signed distribution. It'll come out next March. Hopefully I'll come yeah. back. We'll talk about it. Absolutely. And the distributor is now nego negotiating a multi-picture deal with me where they will fund my films and distribute them, mm -hmm. which will save me the two years that I went through. And then the year of trying to sell the film during the pandemic, which was, you know, horrific. Yeah. So I embrace the changes in our world and I embrace technology. Yes. And I embrace all the options available for filmmakers. Awesome. You know, people always say to me today, like, well, if I was starting out, what would you do today? Well, I'd probably go to YouTube. Oh. I'd probably do what you're doing, Marie. Oh, right I'd on. I'd probably try to do a podcast and build an audience. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that was very interesting, and I won't go on and on about this, but mm -hmm. we got 80% certified critics' reviews were favorable. On, and this is published on RottenTomatoes.com. You can go there. And yeah. they're tough. These are the real critics. And it, it was very gratifying. And the audience, 98% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow, that's which is unheard of. Yeah. And so I built this audience. And we've got similar on Amazon and Voodoo and, you know, different places, IMDb. And we've been very, very well reviewed and very highly rated by both audiences and critics, which is very hard to do. Yes. Because normally if audiences really like a movie, critics don't. Mm. If critics like a movie, audiences sometimes don't. Right. So to get both of those together is very rare. Yeah. So, and then like when we started this conversation, American Airlines, I'm building an audience. And what you're doing is building an audience. Yeah. Because I have friends doing what you're doing, creating not necessarily podcasts, but videos. Mm -hmm. you know that they put out let's say a 20 25 minute video once a sure. week about living in their rv about <laughs> something other something that's interesting that they can put on youtube and monetize yes i have friends making between twenty thousand and a hundred thousand dollars a year on monetizing youtube videos hmm. and all kinds of different things right and so the future to me and this is also very interesting because I'm working on an article for a, a film newsletter for next month okay. about how we use podcasts to promote our movie. Okay. And traditionally, you would hire a publicist in Hollywood, mm -hmm. and it's about 10000 a month, give or take, yes. and they would get you publicity. And I've done this for years. Mm -hmm. And I had a publicist, and I got covers of magazines and you know, reviewed in Variety and Hollywood Reporter. And I've got all kinds of articles. On, I've been on the front page of newspapers. That's amazing. Uh, I've been on the American film market. I've done 35 interviews in one day. I've been on e-television. Well, after the pandemic, 
a lot of newspapers and publications let film critics go. Mm -hmm. So it's a tightened market. They also got rid of film journalism. So yeah. they can just take it off of the Associated Press or USA Today and put it in there. Sure. So if you're not a big movie star in a big movie, opening in a lot of theaters and cities where these publications exist, publicity for independent films is basically dried up. It's very hard. Yeah. Now, if you're Tom Cruise and you're doing Top Gun too, that's different. Yes. But most of us in the independent world aren't like that. And so even though I had Burt Reynolds and Salma Hayek mm -hmm. um, in you know the mix, we still weren't able to get press like oh, we used wow. to. So we hired in the beginning, we worked with three different publicity firms and we didn't really get anything. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up with one article in the Producers Guild magazine that kind of goes to people that are producers, but not mass audiences. Right. So Scott, again, crediting our mutual friend, Scott DuPont. Yes. Scott came up with this idea of doing podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we started doing these podcasts and people were generally interested in what I had to say or to go look at the movie. And then, you know, in their comments and then emails they'd send us. And we we think that podcasts, what you're doing, yes, is the new way to promote independent film and anything else you want to promote. Right on. So it, it becomes this tremendous vehicle. And then the colleges started calling. Mm -hmm. So we done we did University of Oregon recently, and they had Louise Levinson and, and Maggie, who's the producer, and myself, yes. all on this seminar for two-day seminar on financing film. And we did it by Zoom. And so Louise is, I, I can't even remember the places she does, but she does places all over the, the country, colleges. And so we also talked, we've done some screenings in person, yes. like Wholesale University, and we've done these other you know schools. But we also do the Zoom thing where they can watch the movie, then they can talk to us. Right. So it's a new world, and it's exciting. It is. <laughs> because, because you can be anything you want to be in this world, and people listening can figure out where their passion is, do it with complete integrity. Mm -hmm. And the kind of the neat thing about YouTube, um, they'll sell the commercials. Right. You know, they'll, they'll put it out there. And once you get a certain number of hours or a certain number of viewers, they will put it out there uh, and they'll put commercials. At, and you control this, either the beginning, the end, sure or thing, yeah. in, in between. And they will give you money every month. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I have a film project I'm working on that it appears as though I'm going to get funded. Awesome. But I'm so passionate about this film. I said to my partner, my wife, Maggie, I'm going to make this if we have to fund the film ourselves and give it away on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Because I think enough people would watch it on YouTube that they would, you could make your money back. For example, right. if you made a low budget film, or let's say a hundred thousand, which is probably the smallest you can really make a film that's you know really good for. Fair enough. And you put it on YouTube and monetize it. Mm -hmm. You could make back your entire budget just off YouTube and still own all the rights to go and put it on Tubi or Freebie. Yeah. Or there's this great new channel, Docurama, that we're on the greatest documentaries of all time, cool. which is a great channel, by the way. And so all these new channels are emerging. These sort of free channels where people can see film because what happened in the pandemic everybody signed up for all these streaming and now all of a sudden their cable bills 400 a month and they're like well you know that's a uh, lot i don't think so <laughs> yeah so a lot of people are turning uh to tubi 
which is now, I think, the number one. I think they have the most movies and the most viewers now. Interesting. And yeah. it's all free. I mean, you can, you can pay more money and not get the commercials. Of course. But we go find films on there all the time. And I, I'm a guy who all my life has not liked television and has not liked commercials. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, um, somebody was telling me the other day, a producer, that they're going to make their next movie and go right to Tubi and give it away for free. Yeah. Because without all the middlemen yes. and without all the extra expenses, they can make a profit. Mm -hmm. And it, on their last movie, they made like, I don't know, $150,000 or something mm -hmm. from Tubi alone. Yeah, that's so great. It, it's really exciting <laughs> to be an artist, a creative person, or a filmmaker. Absolutely. But you can't study the old business models because they don't work. Right. You have to sort of get on the internet. You sort of have to get on YouTube. You sort of have to watch podcasts like this and you have to start collecting that information. Yes. And about half of my friends, because now that I have a hit film, everybody's my friend again. Yeah. So my, phone, <laughs> my phone rings, my emails are full. You know, I mean, my Twitter accounts are going crazy. My, I joined the link, my distributor made me join LinkedIn. Which I oh, okay, right on. In March 1st, and I went from zero to like 2,000 connections in like 90 Amazing. Days. So I'm hearing from people I went to high school with. You know, oh. I'm hearing from people that aren't my relatives but think they are. And, you know, it, it's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of having fun with it. And I'm very polite yeah. to everybody. I don't mean any disrespect. Sure, sure. But, you know, uh, there's an old saying, and I'm sure you've heard it, but Confucius said, uh, you know, that, that uh, victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan. Mm. And it's true. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going through that moment now where I'm like, oh, yeah, we were with you the whole time. You know? Yeah. You're like, and I didn't know like, <laughs> you know, You're on the outer ring. You're my friend. Just, you know, I understand. So, you know, we, when you go through this kind of a process, I got to a point. I had a literary agent for years, Mike Hamelberg in Los Angeles. Okay. And Mike always said, you'll find your voice as an artist. And he always said, Rick, you're a great writer. You're a great director. But you're making stuff other people want you to make. Yes. You've got to find your voice. You've got to go out on a limb. You've got to take a chance. And Mike died a couple of years ago. But he was an amazing mm -hmm. guy. And he That's sold amazing. the script for Taxi Driver. Mm -hmm. And he um, produced the Yakuza, the uh, Robert Mitchum movie with Sidney Pollack. He had an amazing career. And he represented and sold tons of books. He was a great agent for me. And he was instrumental. I brought Ernest Borgnine to him and he published Ernest Borgnine's book. And, um, you know, we had all kinds of projects we worked on. He was just a, a really class guy. Yeah. And there are classy people in show business. Oh, you right just on. have to look. You just have to, you just have to dig really, really hard. I mean, you and I exist. So clearly there's classy people that exist. <laughs> there's two. There's yeah. two. You know, there's two. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but you got to be careful who you associate with. Mm -hmm. And if you're desperate for money or you're desperate for fame, those are bad things. You, right. you need you almost need to you need to figure out a way to be financially independent mm -hmm. and not dependent on it. Because my right. biggest problem, I was talking to a friend of mine who called me from China. Oh, okay. He's a uh, stuntman. Mm -hmm. And when all of this crazy stuff started happening he went over to china to open a theme park they're very big on these american style theme parks okay when he got caught in the pandemic 
and he couldn't leave China. You know, he, he, no one would accept a flight from China. Right. And so he's lived over there and he's opened another theme park. And we were talking the other day. He's a little bit younger than me, but he's a SAG actor. He's been in about 200 movies. Got it. And he's a very, I'll just tell you his name. His name's Red Horton. Okay. He's a very famous stuntman. He's done stunt work for Jack Nicholson and Chuck Norris and whatever. But he was a stuntman actor. And mm -hmm. we worked on several films together when he was in Hollywood. And he's right. one of my favorite people in the world. And he was saying that it was it's really interesting because from his perspective, you know, the old show business just isn't there. Right. And he gets calls in China, people looking for work. And he says, well, I'm opening theme parks in China. It's not exactly, you know, what I want to do. I want to right. come back to America and make movies. But I have to wait till you know, the climate's right. And we were talking about how it's changed and evolved. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I've learned in show business that I think applies to everybody. Absolutely. Be a lifetime student of everything. Mm -hmm. Because everything changes constantly. Yes. It doesn't seem like it is, but it's changing fast. I agree. And everything I learned in the movie business when I went out to Hollywood is ridiculous. You know, we don't shoot on film. We don't roll the film through a, a you know, a, a viewer and, and cut it with scissors or a knife. Right. You know, it's all different. And on my last film, I worked with 4K cameras and gliders and drones and, 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 and glass lenses and things I'd never worked with. Mm -hmm. My last films had been on 35 millimeter Panavision, okay. you know, and, and it's a whole different world. Yes. And so I always tell people, become a student of whatever it is you want to do. If you want to be an actor, acting is radically different today than it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's radically different than it was 10 years ago. Yes. And the way that people act, the way that people direct films, the way that the sets run, the way that you're on location, most likely not mm -hmm. in a studio. Right. So, you know, it's an evolving craft, you know, and, and you've got to constantly learn and understand that. And two things that I believe in deeply, mm -hmm. experience and education. Yes. Get as much education as you can afford and keep right. being educated and get as much experience as you can. Absolutely. You know, and, and when you put those two things together, out of that will become your skill set. Absolutely. And that's the other thing that I notice, like in young people today, not to sound like some old geezer, but <laughs> a lot of people want to work for me. I get a lot of people to contact me. Okay. Well, a lot of them have just went to school, but they've never done anything. Right. And I'm like, well, you kind of need some experience. Absolutely. Others have a lot of experience, but don't really know what they're doing. They don't have a sense of cinema or, you know, what movies are or how, you know, so the terminology isn't there. Right. Because you can't talk to them and say, well, in this, I never saw that movie. Oh, well, in the, in the way, the, 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 the superstructure, what's a superstructure? Right. Well, we're not going to use a cherry picker on this show. What's a cherry picker? I mean, nobody even knows the terminology. Mm -hmm. So if you have to, on the set, which is like an ATM machine hemorrhaging $100 bills at you as you're shooting, <laughs> you don't have time to sit down and explain everything to everybody. Right. So exactly. what I'm always looking for is somebody that got the best education they could mm -hmm. and as much experience as they yes. could. The other thing, people are always bugging me. Well, how did you get in the movie? And it was much <laughs> harder when I did it. Yeah, should we go down memory lane and figure out how that <laughs> manifests? Well, I wrote something that people liked 
and paid me money. I had a spec script that I lived off of for years that eventually got made and released by Universal Studios. Mm -hmm. I also had a student film. I had a really good student film. And I produced it for $2,000. And I shot it on film. Yes. And I think the most expensive thing in the budget was catering the crew Kentucky Fried Chicken. We bought some <laughs> chicken. But, wow. But I made a short film. And I had this wonderful actor, uh, Joe Whip, who left our movie and did Nightmare on Elm Street, which mm -hmm. really helped get recognition for the film. Yes. And so I did two or three short films. I might have made four total. And one of them got distributed and was on a video called Best Short Films of the Year. Sure. And one of them played in a movie theater and one of them played on a cable channel. Okay. So I had gone out and done these a short film or a series of short films and mm -hmm. a script. So when people come to me and I go, give me a sample of your work and they don't have any. I mean, that negates hiring someone. Yeah. Why would I hire someone who hasn't written, directed, or been involved in anything that was ever made? Yeah, why? It, it, you know, because I'm, I'm just, I'm not at that point. And every position is so important. So my thing is get experience, get education, and figure out where your passion is. Mm -hmm. Everybody should go make a short film, yeah. every, including you, everybody. I'm, I'm down for it. Absolutely. Showcase your talent. Show the world <laughs> what you can do. Put it on YouTube. No, There's not. plenty of channels. I have a channel. I'll put it up on YouTube for you. I'll put it up for anybody. It's I'll help anybody get started as long as it's not some obnoxious, obscene, you know, thing. Fair enough. And so, you know, I'm not interested in any of that nasty stuff. I'm not interested in, you know, any of that, you know, I could have been very wealthy if I would have listened and you know, done pornography or sex films, because a lot of people do. A lot of famous people do that you don't know about. Yeah. But I just was never interested. That wasn't my thing. Right. So, but what I'm saying is make a short film. It can be two minutes. It can be 10 minutes. How did David Lynch start? He made a short film. How did Steven Spielberg made a short film? Yeah. Okay. It was called Amblin, the name of his company. How did Marty Scorsese short start? Marty did a thing called The Big Shave when he was a student at NYU. Mm -hmm. These short films are what propelled them to getting feature jobs. Absolutely. And my first big job was in television, which was on the original Gorgeous Ladies, a wrestling show. And the director was trying to get a movie made. And I met him and uh, I showed him my short film and I let him read my spec script. And he hired me to do this film with Elizabeth Taylor and Glenda Jackson which was being set up at Orion and I was going to be assistant director and work. And then that fell through. And then one day he keeps walking in the hall of our building in Beverly Hills. And he goes, he goes, ladies wrestling. And I'm like, what? He goes, I'm going to do a ladies wrestling show. And you're going to come. I said, no, I want, no, I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> and so he put together this show called gorgeous ladies of wrestling, the original glow, which ran for seven years. Mm -hmm. And I worked on season one. I helped create what they call the Bible, which is the sort of all the characters and the descriptions. Fair enough. And um, I was the head writer and the associate director. Okay. And I learned a great deal. Yes. And then I left the show and I went out and immediately was able to get a feature film because Glow was a hit show on television. Yes. And every Saturday morning, my name was on it twice. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to convince the star of that show to do my movie right. and a distributor went whoa 
glows on in 200 cities. It's a smash hit in the ratings. And, and um, you are one of the creators and you are involved in it. And you can get the star and you can make a movie, right? Yeah. He goes, I'll, I won't give you the money, but I'll guarantee distribution. So we got guaranteed distribution and we went out and we raised the money. And that's how I made my first film, Provoke. So everything I'm advising is exactly, and it hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. You know, your movie might be on YouTube. Your yeah. movie might be something that you send me and I watch on video sure. on, on the internet, but it, it doesn't matter. Right. The idea is make something. And I did, I wrote a great spec script. Three days out of the typewriter, we optioned it. <laughs> and for, I think, I'm, I've kind of forgotten this, but it, I, it was, I think it was like six to eight years, somewhere in there, we got money every six months. That's and then the money went up because more people wanted, it was a great script called The Photographer. Okay. It was a Hitchcock. It was a Hitchcock thing. Okay. And it was the um, fiance. Uh, this girl and her fiance go home to Michigan, where I was from, to spend the Thanksgiving weekend and meet mm -hmm. all the family and okay. announce they're getting engaged. So the family all gathers at this remote farmhouse. But there's one problem. What's People the problem? start turning up dead. Oh. And they're thinking, and the only oddball is the fiance. Hmm. So he's now the suspect. So it's a little Agatha Christie meets Alfred Hitchcock. One location. Shoot the whole movie at a farmhouse. That was the whole idea. And I wrote it for an actress who was my then sort of on and off girlfriend, who was the inspiration for the lead character. And um, people, the script read really well. And it was a one location movie. If you're trying to make a movie, here's a million dollar piece of advice. Rear window. Rope. Mm -hmm. Some of the greatest movies ever made are one location movies, Die Hard. Right. You can cut your budget in half and in half again if you do a one location movie. Absolutely. I was working with David Putnam, a guy that did Chariots of Fire. Remember him? Okay. He was, he was president <laughs> of Columbia Studios. Right. And, and I was trying to sell him a one location movie. And I ended up, I was honored one year by the Los Angeles film teachers or something. Amazing. And I was at the table and he was the big, recipient of the big award sure and i i was a big fan of chariots of fire i thought it was a great movie and david was this english producer who they made the head of the studio mm -hmm. and i was pitching him this idea of this one location movie uh, and he said that he had just bought a movie the entire movie was shot in an elevator with three actors wow <laughs> and it was a swedish film and i thought wow this is you know fantastic yeah whenever you can pitch a one location movie you're really going to get people interested. And yeah. it really is all about how good are the actors, how good is the script, and is it an interesting location? Mm -hmm. And so I sold another script to a major movie star. The entire movie was set on an airplane. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And it, 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 this was before Air Force One, which is somewhat similar to the movie I saw. Right. And so, but the idea was that a person was trapped on an airplane. Yeah. That was hijacked and he had to figure out how to save it. Mm -hmm. And so I sold this to one of the biggest movie stars of all time to his production company. He wanted to make it. He ultimately ended up not making it, but it was very exciting and we got paid and all that stuff. Yeah. So one of the big hints for anybody out there that wants to make a movie, one location, it really, really works and it, and it works really well. So you kind of learn these, these habits. So yeah. that spec script, made us a more money on option money than selling it. I think we got like $30,000 when we sold the script. 
Right on. And they made it, and it was terrible, and Universal released it, and, you know, <laughs> writers create, writers don't control. So yeah. if you want to control, you have to be a producer or a DGA director. Right and on. if you don't have those, then you you can't control your writing. I mean, it's just impossible. Makes it's sense. not a writer's medium. Yeah. Uh, writers are, you know, exploited and ripped off, and there's a very famous story. Gore Vidal wrote a book, mm -hmm. and they adapted it, and they hired him to do the screenplay. And so he wrote the screenplay. Okay. And the Writers Guild, some other writers worked on it. And the Writers Guild determined that Gore Vidal didn't deserve a writing credit because he hadn't written enough of the final script. Gotcha. And he, he sued the Writers Guild and lost. Oh, so no. there's all this politics involved of other writers and producers can bring in other writers. And all of a sudden, you know, their girlfriend or their wife or somebody you know, wrote something and now they, they're, you know, it's just, it becomes crazy. I have another friend of mine is a very famous screenwriter. Mm -hmm. He wrote a couple of really big hit films and early on in his career, he was really broke Oof. and he wrote a great movie, really great movie. What's and the director came to him and said, I don't want your name on it. I want to say I wrote and directed. It. Oh, geez. Wow. Well, but he was broke and he'd been struggling and he took $400,000. Hmm. Of course, the movie became a classic. It's a major hit. And my yeah. friend's name is not on it. Right. And he used to come to my writing classes in Los Angeles. And he would say, biggest mistake I ever made in my life. Because I could have made millions. Could have, yeah. Off, but it's my movie script verbatim. That's the true. The director had nothing to do with it. And the 400000 I can't live on the rest of my life. But had I had my name on it, right. I could have booked $4 million in writing jobs. Absolutely. Well, so, I want to, on that note, uh, take a break and uh, let people sit and marinate with that for a moment. <laughs> After a two-year COVID hiatus, get ready to kick off this year's holiday season with Broadway to the Rescue as they ensemble for one night only to perform the all-singing, all-dancing variety show they like to call the Big Fat Christmas Show. This holiday season, some of Broadway's best and brightest performers assemble to give back to the Hope of the Valley and raise funds for their mission to prevent, reduce, and eliminate poverty, hunger, and homelessness in Los Angeles. This Friday, December 2nd, at the El Portal Theater at 8 p.m. That's elportaltheater.com. Discount code HOPE. Hope to see you all there. All right. So, yeah, that, that's a lot to take in to know that you pass on such a big project such a jewel of a project that you wanted to call your own and you gave that up to someone else i'm like i can only imagine what that did for him you know i mean that's that's very much like atrocious to be frank yeah and on the flip side you know i had the great fortune of living next to sylvester stallone when i moved to hollywood before rocky okay and i actually wrote a series of interviews about Sylvester and spent some time with him and went some places with him. And I learned the whole Rocky story. And he was an actor from New York mm -hmm. who, and, and by the way, most of the stuff you read about this stuff isn't true. Oh yeah. Just okay? <laughs> so I'm just telling you the truth. I moved from Flint, Michigan to Hollywood, California. And I rented an apartment on Camino Palmero and Hollywood Boulevard. And the, the person, the next unit over was Sylvester Stallone, who the manager, who had been a stuntman and a friend of Errol Flynn's, introduced me. He goes, I got this uh, 
buddy, uh, Sylvester Stallone, he did this uh, little low-budget fight film. Uh, you want to watch it? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So one day I'm sitting at the pool and I'm on one of those chase lounges and this big guy with long hair parted in the middle down on his shoulders, drooling out of the left side of his mouth. He was born in Hell's Kitchen hmm. and they left an instrument in his mouth. So he drooled, he later got it fixed. But he, he kind of goes, oh, I'm Sylvester Stallone. Hey, I got this low budget fight film. You want to come see it? <laughs> I said, yeah. So I went to see the film, which was Rocky. And this was in June of 1976. Okay. And the film didn't open until December. And so I went over and I knocked at his door. I said, uh, you made a great film. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, don't tease me. Yo, yo. And I was like, I was like, That's a great oh. impression, by the way. <laughs> and so I lived for about six months. Uh, he stayed in the building because he, he didn't make very much money on Rocky. But here's the interesting part of the story, contrast with a guy who sold out. Hmm. Stallone said uh, he, he came from um, New York and he drove a, a, he had a Volvo and it broke down at the intersection of Hollywood and Vine. And the mufflers were off of it. So oh, yeah. all four windows had to be rolled down. So if you went somewhere with, yeah, slide, make a right. There's nobody here. Come on, you know. And this, he's driving around in this Volvo with the windows down all the time. Wow. Um, he was a real character. And he was the nicest, greatest guy to me in the world. And I learned a great deal about the movie business just watching what he was going through on Rocky. Mm -hmm. But what had happened was he, for his birthday, his then wife, Sasha, bought him a ticket to go watch this closed circuit, heavyweight, heavyweight fight between Muhammad Ali and this guy, Chuck Wepner. Okay. And um, he went, and Wepner wouldn't go down, even though he was quite beaten up in the fight. Mm -hmm. And so Stallone wanted to write a movie about it, but about a boxer, that was inspired by this, but that he wanted to take all of his frustrations of being an actor mm -hmm. and put into it. Right. So it really became his personal story. So he wrote Rocky and um, they wanted to buy it. And it was a very similar situation. I think he was offered 250,000, if I remember correctly, hmm. if he wouldn't star in it. And he goes, no, no, I'm, I'm Rocky, I'm playing Rocky. And they wanted it to be, you know, Burt Reynolds or Ryan O'Neill or, you know, whomever. Wise right. of Kelly for all I know. But they, <laughs> you know, they wanted to recast it. And yeah. Stallone would not give in. And eventually they let him make his film for United Artists as the actor and as the writer. And John Avelson, great director who I later met. Mm -hmm. And I did a series of interviews. So what I'm telling you is based upon you know, real life. I mean, I interviewed Talia Shire, the co-star, and John Avison and all these people. And I met all these people in Stallone's universe, Burt Young, you know, all these great people. Absolutely. And they made the picture in Philadelphia. And um, it was really funny. Stallone has this great story that a, an executive said, why do you have to shoot in Philadelphia? They well, that's the grittiness of the streets. And we want Rocky to run through the streets. And we want to see your breath, you know, when you breathe. He goes, well, I got out of my swimming pool this morning and I could see my breath. It wasn't quite the same. But so Stallone would not give in. Mm -hmm. And he went back and they shot it and they passionately cared about it. 
And uh, they brought the film in for $6 under a million, which was the budget on Rocky. Wow. And of course, it's one of the most successful film franchises in history. And the original Rocky is one of the greatest films ever. Yes. And if you're ever depressed, go watch it. Yes. And when you realize what he accomplished, you know, I interviewed Talia Shire, who is an amazing person that I work with and love and adore. Sure. And Tally, who was Francis Ford Coppola's, you know, sister, who'd been in The Godfather, mm -hmm. said that like on the lunch breaks, they would go in, Sylvester and the director, John Avelson, and um, uh, Sly and Tally, and they would make the sets and decorate the sets because the people on the crew were like, well, we're movie stars. There's no movie stars in this movie. And it was very frustrating, but they were determined. And one of the great things Stallone told me, I always think about this as a director. Absolutely. He said, I walked out of my trailer. The first scene they shot was Stallone running through the streets of Philadelphia in freezing weather. Mm -hmm. And he walked out of his trailer and John Avelson, the director, was laying in the gutter of the street holding a camera. And he said, I knew then we had a successful film. Because what happens is, yes. and this is the essence of your podcast, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're on fire, you have that fire, that drive. Yeah, absolutely. And three people had it. Now, I, I'm not bad-mouthing, but I will tell you, the editors took their name off the film because they said it was a terrible film. A lot of people didn't like the film, mm -hmm. and they didn't think it was going to do anything. Right. But at the nucleus, you had the director, the lead actress, the lead actor, writer, who cared passionately. Yes. And when I'm directing, I think about that a lot. Mm -hmm. And I've been on a lot of movie sets. And, you know, a lot of directors have an entourage and go to lunch and keep 300 extras waiting. And a lot of them sleep in and act like they're Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. And then the ones that really want to make great, passionate films mm -hmm. are laying in the gutter in the cold trying to get a shot. Right. And I'm like, that's the level of commitment. So when I make a film, I shot 100 hours of footage for Movie Money Confidential. First cut was three and a half hours. Mm -hmm. The picture runs 141 minutes. Yeah. So I'm doing the best of the best of the best of the best. Now, a lot of right. people got mad at me, you know, that we, we had made a deal. Scott made a deal okay. with the investors that they could be in the movie to get their money. Right. You know, you have to make some trade-offs. So I interviewed every investor that wanted to be interviewed. Okay. But they weren't that interesting. Mm -hmm. And so then when I cut them short, they got mad at me. Hmm. And they were like, well, what are those high school kids? You're giving them too much time and I should be in the movie. I said, I said you know, as a director, the most interesting things have to be in the movie. Right. You got to grab and your so audience. And a lot of the investors, you know, were mad at me and they were going to sue me. And one of them went on the Internet and said I was a terrible director. And, you know, they did a podcast and said I wouldn't listen to the executive producer. Well, the way it normally works is the director sort of has control of the film. And especially okay. I'm in the Directors Guild of America, which I'm very proud of. But I have final cut and all my contracts. Well, it's my film. You know, you can. You can tell me things before and after, but it's my film. Mm -hmm. And in the editing room, you have to stay true and you have to cut people out that don't yeah. aren't as strong or you have to tighten those scenes. And, you know, ultimately I feel vindicated by the audiences and by the critics. Yeah. But you've got to 
you got to be strong also. You can't just have a fire in your heart. Yeah, absolutely. You got to be persistent, but you got to be strong. And yeah. sometimes you have to fire people mm -hmm. and you have to explain to them why. And sometimes you have to say no to people. And I get tons of people asking me for jobs almost every day. And I kind of go through the routine, you know, what do you have? Send me a sample of your work. Exactly. And at whatever point they falter, I try to explain to them what you're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, and I get a lot of people from overseas that like actors. So what they think I'm going to hire an actor and bring them from overseas, but they don't have a reel. I'm like, no, I can't do that. Right. And so a lot of it is just communication. And a lot of this, I think, stems from two things. Number one, Hollywood has always been a closed shop until recently. Mm -hmm. And it was closed to women. Women could not play the leads. Women could not do certain things. Uh, and minorities. Right. And many minorities were stereotyped as villains. Mm -hmm. And it's horrible. Yeah. And I'm very proud that I've broken those molds in my films. And I don't go by those rules. I know those rules. I just don't go by them. Right. But I did go by them as a writer working at the studios because I needed to pay my mortgage, my two car payments, my two cell phones, put my sit, pay for my son's diapers and whatever else I had to pay for. Absolutely. But, you know, in the end, as an independent filmmaker, I'm not making those compromises. And I think that's why my film is so successful. I, love I, think that. People, I also think there's a subtext of the universal truth. People will watch this podcast and they'll either say, okay, Maria's sincere. I like what she's doing or she's a phony. Yeah. Either he's sincere or he's a phony. Right. You know, I went through most of my career charging people $300 to take a class to hear me say all this or charging people $150 an hour as a consultant. Sure. Now I refuse to do consulting. I refuse to teach. I only offer it for free hmm. because I want to help people. Right. And I love the explosion of social media. I love YouTube. I love what you and I are doing. Absolutely. I love just meeting you. Being able to talk to you. It, it, I'm anxious. Honestly, <laughs> you I have to tell you, folks, yeah. she's not as nice as she appears. She <laughs> makes you go through a pre-interview that's like four hours long. Yeah. <laughs> she asked for medical records, a urine test. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah, it was and, crazy. But you you complied and you you passed the test. Yeah. So <laughs> if you can get through the pre-screening to get on this show, it's it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So, but the point is that when you go through this process. People are going to decide there's a subtext. Is this person genuine? Right. Is this person real? Right. Is this person sincere? Exactly. And I was very excited in our pre-interview. And I was yeah. like, you know, you're very attractive. You have the best oh, teeth I've ever seen in my life. Appreciate and, that. And I, I think as a director, it's nothing. <laughs> I'm not coming on to you. I'm happily married. I'm not. It's nothing yes. sexual. But as a Maybe director, you're a beautiful soul. <laughs> no, but I look at bone structure. So uh, I look at your cheeks. I look at your mouth. I look at God, she'd be beautiful to photograph. And I'm always looking for that, you know, as a director. Right. And I, I'm always looking at like, wow, this person would really photograph well. From Some people look gorgeous and don't photograph well. Mm -hmm. And some people aren't that great in person, but photograph and have a magic that comes on. Right. And it's just a very, you know, I've met many, many movie stars, some of whom are better looking and some of whom aren't. Mm -hmm. as good looking as they are you know it's lighting and makeup and all kinds of editing and different things right so you know i'm anxious to see your reel yeah i'm anxious <laughs> i'm anxious to hear from some of your listeners 
of, hey, you know, Rick, what about this? Or, hey, let's do this. Absolutely. And it's not so much that I'm going to make their movie because I'm sort of busy doing my own. But I'm going to say, hey, call this person. Or, hey, this is where you should focus your energy on. And so starting off to answer my first thing that I got sidetracked on. Yes. They, the, the, the it was kind of a closed shop. Mm-hmm. It was very hard to get in the Director's Guild. It's hard to get in the Screen Actors Guild. It's very hard to get in the Teamsters, I ask. So it's kind of a closed shop. It is. That aside, all of the press was mainly controlled by the seven major studios. Mm. But now, you know, people talk about there aren't any great movie stars anymore because they're on Twitter. They're on social media. It's taken away the mystique of movie stars. But it's also opened up the industry to go, hey, if you can raise 100000 or 250000 or up to a million dollars, you're a filmmaker. Yeah. Now, go make a great film. Right. Find, you know, like-minded people, passionate, artistic, creative people. Put a crew together. Put a talented cast together and make a movie. And there's more distribution outlets today yes. for independent filmmakers ever in the history of the world. Now, if you're hung up on the fact you want to go to the Sundance Film Festival, (laughs) about 90-some percent of those films are rejected. Mm -hmm. And of the ones that get in the Sundance, like 2% of them ever get distribution. That's like the old school. It's expensive, and the odds are greatly against you. Oh, I want to open in a theater. I want to be an independent film. Well, there aren't a lot of independent films doing well right now. Mm -hmm. They're doing great on streaming. They're doing great on premium channels or free channels or, you know, video on demand channels. Sure. So my friend Red, who's in China, just watched my movie. He finally got it and was able to pay for it on one of these demand channels that he got through the Internet. Because I asked my distributor, I get letters from people. Yes. People in Switzerland or Sweden or China. I want to see your movie. How do I see your movie? Which is so great. So I sent him to the distributor. So I asked about China because I'd had a few people in China wanted to see it. He says, we don't sell to China. They just pirate it. We can't deal with them. We're just, you know. Wow. So they found a way to go on the internet and download the film. I think he paid $2.99 to watch it. And then he told me he watched it again a second time because he was so impressed with the film. Mm. So, you know, the more access we can get, right. whether it's through t- Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever social media, to the world, YouTube, I mean, the, yes, the untold story great, of yeah. Hollywood is YouTube is really the biggest movie studio. Mm-hmm. They have the most viewers. They have they pay the most money to filmmakers. And some of these people are making a million dollars a year on YouTube. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy. But nobody, but, but, but the traditional press doesn't want to tell you that. And the <laughs> studios don't want to tell you that because they don't want to compete. But right. the truth is, in my personal life, unless I have a movie to watch, which I normally do for work, sure. I'll go on YouTube. And I might top, I might put in some crazy topic or I might listen to music or I might be in the mood to go watch videos about somebody that I really love that's no longer here. Or I might want to watch one of my friend's shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the amazing. It's part. so accessible. Yeah. And yeah, I, there was a there yeah. was a film I really wanted my wife to see. What is it? We couldn't find it. We couldn't find it. We couldn't find it. And um, we finally found this great film that I would, was somewhat involved in on the edges. And it was on tu- uh, Tubi. Mm. And we didn't mind the commercials because we couldn't find the film anywhere else. Wow. And supposedly Tubi has the most collection of 
movies of any streaming site. And the fact they're free is like, you you know, so people how, that can't afford, can not? yeah, people that can't afford $65,000 to go to film school at USC or UCLA or NYU, you can go to Tubi and watch a movie every day and pretend like you're in a classroom and then go read up on that movie and you're getting an education. Yeah. So, you know, don't be intimidated by that. Absolutely. And I, I taught for a while at University of Southern California, which okay. is also nicknamed University of Spoiled Children. So <laughs> you pay $65,000 a year and you go sit in a room and you watch a movie. Yes. Okay. You can do that at home for free. So, you know. But, but I, what I, did you bring to the table that was at least unique to your experience? Right. But, but, but if you can afford it, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. You can sit in the Lucas building and the Spielberg building and you can do all of that crazy stuff. And or, you know, you can, you know, go out and do whatever. One of the classes, seminars, I think, that I taught, mm -hmm. John Singleton was in. Wow. The guy who did Boys in the Hood, who died recently. He was a yeah. great young filmmaker. And I remember John was so energetic and so full of fire. And, and uh, he ultimately made Boys in the Hood, which was his story about mm -hmm. growing up in South Central. And it was a tremendous film. Mm -hmm. And so opportunities do exist there if Absolutely. you can afford it. If you can get a scholarship or if you have money or wherewithal. But if not, don't be discouraged. Jim Cameron, one of the nicest people I've ever met, and one of the most generous people. I, I, I'll just call him an acquaintance, although I think we're friends. Okay. He's always been there. No, he's always been there for me. Okay, solid. He, he gave me a clip from a Terminator thing for a movie I was doing when I was going out as an independent that was just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Hollywood, um, we were mutual fans and he was very supportive. And I, I did some screenings at University of Southern California. Yes. We did the first screening of Terminator at USC. And he wow. and Gail Ann Hurd were there and it was unbelievable. And I've always been a huge fan of Jim Cameron. Yeah. And he, but he didn't go to film school. Oh, okay, right on. Spielberg was rejected from USC and UCLA. They wouldn't okay. take him. He went to Long Beach State and Sylvester Stallone, who we've been talking about, never went to film school. Mm -hmm. So the truth is, if you can afford it, it's great. Yes. But you can get educated other ways. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm hoping that eventually there's a film school on the internet so people can get it very affordably and learn filmmaking. Yeah. Because that was the other thing. Filmmaking was for people that had connections or were rich or famous or, you know, there's a lot of nepotism. But like you said, the level of accessibility, if there's so many platforms to distribute one's uh, work, you know, why not make education that much more accessible, you know, to the population? Exactly. Yeah. Well, because they're afraid. The people in power don't want to share. Oh, okay. You know, they know. They, 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 yeah. When I first started teaching screenwriting, I would call up friends of mine that were directors or screenwriters, you know, well-known people that had hit films. And they would say, what is wrong with you? I said, what do you mean? Why are you teaching screenwriting? I said, well, there's a lot of people that can't afford film school and my class is $300 and I'm, you know, I've had a lot of success helping people sell scripts. And I think in the end, we sold like 65 scripts out of my classes in nine years, which is a big number. It was very, you know, I had about 1500 students and uh, they would say, never wise up a chump. Why are you wising up chumps? I said, I'm not. I, I said, I, I didn't go to film school. And I, you know, I have degrees, but I didn't go to film school per se. Right. And, and they were, people would say, I'd never speak at your class. You're an idiot. They hang up the phone. <laughs> and I was really disappointed. And I would send letters to people. 
Mm-hmm. And and some of them were just mean. Mm-hmm. They'd like send back this fancy embossed stationery and it would be typed out to me and everything. And they'd sign it and then they'd just put in no. <laughs> Not effort. I'm working on something, you know, just no. <laughs> no. I don't want to mention Larry Gelbart, any names, yep. but the guy that created MASH would never speak. <laughs> and he wrote back on this embossed, probably cost him about $3 a page in those days. That's such so, a compliment to you. <laughs> and he wrote, no, well, I framed it. I, I put it up, you know. No, oh, okay. I'm sorry about it. it. <laughs> and, and the other thing they would say to me, and this is still prevalent in Hollywood, mm-hmm. is keep outsiders out of the business. Mm-hmm. The indep- that, now, this is traditional Hollywood. Okay. Studios. The independent world says, come on, come on, you're all welcome. Yeah. We don't care your sex, your color, your politics. We don't care your age. We don't care. We want all of you. Come on. Yes. You're all it. Come on. And that's what my movie tries to do, Movie Money Confidential. I try to reflect. I try it. I try to fly the flag proudly for independent film. And so a lot of them would also say to me, Marie, they'd go, well, you know, screenwriting is a great way to make a living. Yes, it is. We're way overpaid. Yes, we are. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes I would make in Hollywood 10,000 a week. Now, it may not sound like a lot of money to people, but it was to me. And my father was a United States postal worker. He had gone in World War II. He'd been shot in the head. Mm. He laid in a foxhole for three days. They found him alive, and they took the bullet out the other side of his head. But he never fully recovered. And mm. so he got the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart. Yeah. But my father was a United States postman. Okay. And when I was about or somewhere around 18 years old, sure. my father came to me and said, here, I want to show you my W-2. Look at that. And it was, he had made $10,000 a year being a postman, carrying a leather bag in sleet and snow and rain and being bitten by dogs to deliver mail. Mm-hmm. And he said, I have you a job at the Flint, Michigan post office. You start Monday, midnight to 7 a.m. for $100 a week. I think it was $125 a week. Okay. I said, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm not going to do that job. He said, if you keep your, keep your nose, someday you can make money like this. And I said, Dad, I, I want to make movies. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was a, a TV in the background and Splendor in the Grass came on. Yeah. I had, I had been involved in a political campaign with Warren Beatty. And I knew Warren Beatty, even though I was only 18. Right. And I said, Dad, I know Warren Beatty. And I called him. And he told me to come out to L.A. Mm-hmm. that I should come out there. And my father said, you don't know Warren Beatty. I said, yes, I do. I, I actually do know Warren Beatty. Yeah. And, and my father said, you're going to do what I say or you're going to leave and get out of my house. And he hauled off and he hit me as hard as he could in the face and decked me. Wow. And so I moved out and eventually came to Hollywood. And, you know, I love my father and I forgive him. Yeah. But I made $10,000 a week sitting in my underwear, eating M&Ms, drinking Diet Coke, smoking Cuban cigars, writing movies for Hollywood, Mm -hmm. in a beautiful home, driving a brand new car. Now, maybe I'm a materialistic, shallow person and I've just exposed myself, but I would think about that. And I would think, I live this charmed life. I go to dinner with movie stars. Mm -hmm. I go to Warner Brothers for five years. I went there. 
I worked at Paramount for two years. I go and I meet the most talented, amazing people. Yeah. And I write things for them and they pay me huge amounts of money. Right. And I remember thinking like, I could be working sorting mail from midnight <laughs> to seven at the Flint post office for $125. But I'm making one week. I had a friend of mine, a producer. Mm -hmm. He was going to the Cannes Film Festival. And he had an idea for a movie, but he needed a treatment to go get the money. Yeah. He called me up and he said, I need this on Friday and you and you I'm going to Cannes. Mm -hmm. And I said, Well, what's the story? And he told it. And so I immediately, you know, got it like that. It was something yeah. two films like, like crossing two films. Exactly. And he said, I'll give you ten thousand dollars, two thousand a day if you can get this to me. Hmm. Well, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And I literally got in my house in the desert. I was in the desert at the time, drove to LAX, and he was on the boarding, like where they cordon off the people to get on the plane. Yeah. And I handed him the treatment unseen, and he handed me $10,000. Wow. And I drove home, and I thought about my father and that whole drive, and I thought it was the fire in me that I thought I belonged in the film business. I just made in five days what my father made in 365 days. I hear and that. And I never put on long pants. I never had to go to work. I never had to get up any time I didn't want to. Right. I basically sat at my computer, smoking Cuban cigars, drinking Diet Coke, eating M&Ms, and living a life that, to me, just seemed impossible when I was a kid growing up in Michigan. I heard and that. And was sickly and, you know, whatever. And, 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 and the other thing is, That's nobody impressive. ever encouraged me to go to Hollywood. <laughs> Girlfriends, family, uh, teachers, they all said, no, 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 people like you don't get in the movie business. I know. I was like, where's your support group? Where was that? I didn't have any. Okay. I had, But I read a lot of books, and I had been very ill as a child, and I had been in intensive care. I'd been in oxygen tents. They didn't think I was going to make it. I had some things I was born with. Mm. And until I was a teenager, I didn't think I was going to live very long. Wow. I believed everybody. Yeah. And oh, they all wanted me to be a school teacher or they wanted me to be a postman, what my parents were. They were trying to define you and you were trying to find yourself. And I had no interest. I had absolutely no interest. It's ironic. I became a film teacher for nine years, but I was teaching something other than what I want. You know, I was teaching at the college level. Yeah. So I went to Hollywood without any support whatsoever. And I moved in next door to Sylvester Stallone, which makes me think there's a God because what are the odds of that? What are the odds? <laughs> you know, what are the odds? And right. Sylvester Stallone was very supportive and very generous with his time and was very good to me. Yeah. And I worked on a number of films with him. And, you know, sometimes as an extra, sometimes doing articles, sometimes just hanging out. And I learned a great deal about he came literally from nowhere. Mm -hmm. And he own the, the business. I mean, he was just became colossal right. as an actor and, and, you know, as a filmmaker. And so anyway, um, that's what, you don't know who you're meeting today. You know, I, I used to work for Talia Shire. I mentioned her earlier. She's a great yeah. actress. Yeah. You know, she did Rocky, Godfather one, Godfather two, Oscar nominations for all three. Yeah. And we were driving one day out in, um, Ventura Boulevard in the San Fernando Valley. Okay. And it was very early in the morning. I think I was taking her to catch an airplane to go do a movie or something. I can't remember what it was. Fair and enough. I read scripts for her and I did different things. I babysat for her. 
you know, you, you, you do whatever you can do to survive. Absolutely. And if it's a movie star and they want you to babysit, oh, I'm, I'm a great babysitter. What do I know? What do you know? Uh, so anyway, um, I was driving her somewhere early in the morning. And I don't know if it's still that way, but all of these women were on sitting on the curb because there weren't enough seats on the bus stop mm-hmm. to go clean the homes of all the wealthy people. She lived at the time in Sherwood Oaks. And she said to me, do you see those people down there? Mm-hmm. She said, they're just like you and me. And she said, always mm-hmm. treat those people with respect and love those people. I love that. And she said, that's the key to life. And she get, she said it much better than I just did. But mm. her empathy of those people, of any people, of yes. every person. And to be a great artist and a great filmmaker, I try to do that. I'll tell you stories that people did bad things to me, but I forgive them all. Right. You know, and, mm-hmm. and I love, there's a, there's a famous quote that I love, which unforgiveness is like swallowing poison and hoping the other person dies. Yeah. Because it kills you, not them. Mm-hmm. So I forgive everybody. I don't care. I made mistakes. There yeah. weren't a lot of great books on filmmaking. There weren't any podcasts. There weren't a lot of uh, independent filmmakers at the time. It was very hard to get information. I made the best choice possible. But some of the stuff I wrote wasn't the greatest. Some of it got ruined. Some of it was great mm-hmm. and didn't get made. And then, you know, the other thing that would happen to me is like something really good that I wrote would get made. Yeah. they take my name off it. But oh, then no. something I wrote that was good, they'd make it and it came out bad, but they keep my name on it. So, mm-hmm. and I had no say in any of this. I had no control of any of That's this. That's interesting. Yeah. And one of the reasons I'm not a member of the Writers Guild I advise everybody do not join the Writers Guild because they join, join the, the DGA. <laughs> the director. No, the guild. DGA is great. DGA is fantastic. They will protect your rights as a director. But I'm not a member of the Writers Guild. I am a member of the Directors Guild. I'm a signatory to the Screen Actors Guild. Mm-hmm. But the point is that the Writers Guild controls the final writing credits. Mm. And I had a couple of skirmishes where I created films and created the characters in the original story and didn't get my name on the film. Wow. And I called up the Writers Guild to intervene. And they have some sort of silly rule that 33 and a third percent of the final shooting script has to be written or you don't get your name on it. Well, but the thing they're writing are my characters, my story, my settings. Yes. Shouldn't I get some credit? And so it was very disappointing. Mm -hmm. And when I go to... uh, classes and speak you know members of the writers guild frequently teach screenwriting Mm -hmm. and uh, they like to argue with me about all this (laughs) i don't understand how it works but to me independent film does it better because you control it the real writer gets their name on it and you know it's a much better process more people can participate Mm -hmm. Uh, i i think the independent film is the future and as you're looking at you know, the studios merging, right. you're looking at Disney with declining profits, you're looking at all of this stuff going on, you know, maybe movie theaters are going to be like Broadway. Yeah. You get dressed up and you pay $25 and you go see some spectacle. Sure. But maybe movie theaters, the way we grew up with them, that's not going to be there anymore. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me. And yeah. I nobody loves movie theaters more than I do. Nobody loves going to the movies more than I do. But it's an experience, you know, but yeah. I got used to the pandemic. Here's what I like. It's really funny. My son is 34 years old. Okay. So 
he he said to me during the pandemic, I'm never going to see a movie again in a theater unless you make it. I said, what do you mean? He said, I have a hundred inch TV. I got a, a, a what's that bar he got? Like a sound bar, yeah. Yeah, he got a super sound bar, <laughs> state of the art. And he got some nice leather seating, you know, leather chairs, a seat, like movie seat. Mm-hmm. And every night he goes on Apple or iTunes or whatever, watches whatever movie he wants. And he doesn't care if he pays $20 or $5 or whatever. And if he gets 20 minutes into it and he doesn't like it, he turns it off and buys another movie. Yeah. And, but if you went and got a babysitter and paid for parking and went to the movie theater and sit down and the movie's no good, you're kind of stuck there. Kind of, For two yeah. or three hours. So, and then he said to me that there's a food truck that comes, you know, every night downstairs. So they go down and they get their snacks and their food off the food truck. Right. He invites his neighbors. They sit, they watch the movies. If they don't like it. They turn it off and get another one. Right. And he doesn't pay for any subscription channels. Right. He just buys what he wants. Exactly. And if he's really busy or traveling, he travels a lot. Mm-hmm. He doesn't spend any money on movies unless he's out traveling, you know. Yeah. So, you know, the world's shifting. It is. I think, I think his experience has kind of become my experience. I have a big plasma. Okay. I have Bose surround sound. Yeah. So the experience and big lazy boys. So the, <laughs> the experience of watching a movie at home, the floors are never sticky. Right. There's never food in my chair. You can pause to go use the restroom too. Yes. People don't talk during the movie. <laughs> I don't have any annoying thing. And at the end, when I was going to the theaters, the picture was out of focus. Uh, the sound wasn't always good. Yeah. And so, you know, and we would go tell the, uh, the the manager and he'd go, I'll give you a free ticket. No, no, I want to see this movie. Yeah. I don't want free tickets. I want right. to see the movie I came to, I paid money to. And in the old days, there were two projectors that were synchronized and it would run a 35 millimeter print and then go to the next one. And then they put it on and whatever. So if the if there was a problem, they could stop it. They could rewind it. They could. Well, now they put everything together on a big platter. Yeah. And it's like this, and then it, it's all by computer. And once you push the button, you can never stop it, no matter how out of focus it is. Mm-hmm. If, if if there's something black and blocking the screen, they can't fix it. Sure. And so it's just become automation hell <laughs> in a movie theater because I know I can't get them to fix it. Mm-hmm. I can't get them to you know. Show me sure. the part I should have seen. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's just really unfortunate that the quality of movie theaters has gone down yeah. with the automation. So then what they do is they used to have six projectionists in six theaters. Mm-hmm. And they would sit there and look through the window, make sure everything's fine and the focus and the framing. Well, now there's one poor guy running between six theaters, looking through the little window, trying to make sure it's framed. And, and just the physical act of running back and forth in six projection rooms. And I've been in them. I've, I've gone in and looked. I'd see how they do it. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense anymore. No. So if you go to the end user and you want a good experience, watching a movie at home isn't so bad. It is. Even though I love theaters. <laughs> and now, you know, there's diseases and pandemics and, you know. Yeah. You never know who's theaters. sitting next to you, literally. <laughs> yeah. There's shootings. There's all, you know, terrible yeah. things happen. So I don't like that we're being antisocial, but this is my life and I care deeply about movies. So I want people to hear the dialogue, see the picture, see it the way it's intended. 
Right. And a lot of the theaters would just turn off the projector when the credits started. I'm like, what are you doing? Wow. Well, I have to change and go do that. I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to. It's in the contract. I would argue with theater managers. Oh, no. To show the credits. You know, yeah, so because, you make the, yeah, you need to get to give out the credits. <laughs> well, very few people have front end credits. Mm -hmm. So if you want to see the cast and all that stuff, you have to watch the end. I like reading the credits. Yeah. And I know most people get up and leave. I get that. But for the people that want to see the credits, you pay 10 or $12 or whatever you pay to see a movie and you don't even see the whole movie. They cut off the credits. Right. At least on the streaming channels, you can click and say, don't do that. You know, they'll say, we're going to take it off or whatever, but you can, you can capture it. Exactly. But it, it, it just seems like the movie business is very self-destructive right now. But mm. the independent world, which took the biggest hit on the pandemic, it's slowly coming back around. Yeah. But I would like to see theater survive, and I would like to see movies flourish. Yeah. But I want to see independent films. I, I don't want that. to go see Spider-Man 91 or whatever <laughs> it is. I, I can't keep track. I don't, I got the story the first time. Sure. I don't need 19 more Spider-Mans. I don't. And they keep remaking the same films over and over and over. Yeah. And they're not about real people. They're not about life. They're not inspirational. They're cartoons. There's no, like, heart in the story and, like, and all that. But I, and I they're know. stereotypical. <laughs> yeah they're stereotypical i mean they really are and you want to talk about stereotypes and misogyny and racism go go read cartoon go look yeah. at these comic book movies well Again, rick i want to take a quick pause for now and then uh, we'll just kind of reflect on uh what we just talked about and we'll uh jump right back in and now a word from our sponsor You've been tuning in to Heart on Fire podcast, and I hope you've been enjoying it just as much as I have. And if you want to show some love, please do on whatever platform you are tuning in, even including on my social media pages, Instagram, heartonfire.podcast. Uh, excuse that humming in the background. I was feeling a little bit more joyful this morning. But anyways, I just want to say that you are awesome. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. So as uh, we pretty much uh, surmise, having a movie experience in the comforts of one's home seems to be pretty ideal, affordable, and exciting. Yes, it is. I like it uh, greatly. And uh, I'm able to see a lot more movies, a lot more economically, financially, but also time-wise. Yes, I I. I I totally can imagine what it would be like to just be around friends and family. I mean, uh, you're in Florida now. I was like, what, what's your family-like situation in terms of inviting people for movies? Well, we I'm very fortunate um, that I'm in the Director's Guild, mm -hmm. and I receive screeners of all the new films. Oh, okay. So my wife and I have to keep it to us. But um, I get advanced copies of most of the major movies out of Hollywood. Amazing. So I get to watch those. And then when we find independent films, uh, they either send me a DVD or they send me a link for streaming. Sure. So I, even though I live in Florida, I'm very up on all the stuff that's out there. And then we have cable channels that friends have. Oh, and okay. so I guess we're Uncle, Uncle Rick is yeah. on everybody. You know, so I have Peacock and I have, you know, Showtime and HBO and all that. Um, and so, you know, we're able to watch all that. So if there's a movie everybody's interested in, my assistant 
uh, is this young guy. He's a great guy. And he wanted to see the Halloween Ends movie. Hmm. And I'm, I know John Carpenter. I like him a lot. And I really, okay. love, I think he's an interesting guy. So I've told him some stories. And um, so he wanted to go see it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I have Peacock. We can watch it for free. <laughs> so we came over and we all watched Halloween Ends. And we're all praying it is the end. Because yeah. there's no more movie there. Mm-hmm. But we're, what? Keep dreaming. Yes, the wife says in the background, keep dreaming. Uh, there but, you go. Shout yeah. out to Maggie. Lovely, lovely lady. And then we have this little beagle puppy named Penny. Penny. And Penny's first movie, when she was about six months old, was Nomadland. Mm-hmm. And the Directors Guild sent me a screener. And I was very interested in it. And so I called the Directors Guild. Is it okay if my puppy watching? Because they're very picky. You and a guest. So I was going to have the wife leave. And then the Beagle and I would watch the movie. And then maybe I'd watch it again with the wife. I don't know. <laughs> so, to be she actually sat through the entire movie of Nomadland. She laid on the edge of the bed and watched it. And so oh, now okay. she if now she doesn't like movies that are loud. That makes sense. And she got very upset at Beethoven when okay. they kidnapped the dogs. That She loves that movie, but she barks, jumps at the screen, and tries to jump up, you know, and pull down the TV because she thinks she can go in and save oh. the dogs. So oh. Beethoven got her very upset. So we haven't looked at Beethoven 2 yet. Okay. But... Um, she likes movies, but not where people are in danger or hurt mm-hmm. or gunshots. Or If there's something not nice in the movie, mm-hmm. she gets up and leaves the room. Oh, okay. Got it. Which we all should do, but right. she does. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, we, ha- we have... Quite the filter uh, on your dog. You <laughs> talked about. We got into picking up food mm-hmm. and having food delivered during the pandemic. So, we have movie nights, and it's tremendous. It's a whole new world. But what I try to do is look at as much as I can. I have people that send me, you know, unreleased films. I have friends that have films that have come out mm-hmm. that they want me to watch. So I always have like, we have a list. We try to keep it to one page, single spaced. I think it's up to three pages now. Mm-hmm. So I kind of have a list of things I have to watch, you know, that right. I have to see. And so, you know, um, people will send me their links to their movies or sometimes directors, you know, want to get input. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always give them great advice. They rarely listen, but, you know, you try to help each other. Like I mentioned Jim Cameron yeah. earlier, and I was making my first Florida movie. And it was a film which is out. It's on Tubi right now. It's it's everywhere called Michael Winslow Live. Okay. And it's Michael Winslow in a live comedy concert. The guy from Police Academy makes yeah. all the noises. And he had done the voice for a clip from Terminator that was produced for $12 million that was playing at Universal Studios Florida mm-hmm. that Jim Cameron had directed. Yeah. So I asked Universal, I said, I'm making this movie. Could I get, no, it's Jim Cameron. Are you crazy? We paid $12 million. You'll never get the right. I said, well, I, I know Jim Cameron. And I was, a meet, I was in a meeting of Universal executives at Universal Studios Florida. Yeah. And these people were so high ranking, we were meeting in a trailer. And in the trailer, they had two tables pushed together and they had one of those satellite, you know, weird phones that sure. looks like it's from outer space. And they said, get Jim Cameron on the phone. You're just pulling our leg. Right. I called my office and Your I got dropping. the number for Jim and I called Jim's office. And 
uh, a woman came on and she didn't know me and I explained who I was and I was a friend of Jim's and I've known Jim, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I need this clip. And I wondered if I could get the rights. And she said, okay, let me get your number. I said, well, he really just needs to call my lawyer mm -hmm. because I need to get a signature. And she said, well, he's down in Mexico. He's making Titanic. Hmm. I said, well, maybe I shouldn't try to bother him. And she said, no, no, no. I put a pouch together every day. Mm -hmm. And if you'll just send me a little brief email, I'll give it to Jim. will see it tomorrow. And I'll, I'll, if he doesn't want to, I'll call back. But I, you know, from the sounds of it, Jim will want to do this. Yeah. So I was like, wow, this is okay. So we, we sent it off <laughs> and we got this thing and we got the clip from Terminator. And we got the rights from Jim Cameron. He didn't want any money. So, you know, other directors have helped me because it's a great scene. It's in my movie. Yes. And it really illustrates the point of how effective Michael had done the voices in Gremlins for the little, you know, things going around. Right. And uh, he had done a similar thing for Terminator on this clip at Universal. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get it. So we're in the editing room at Universal. And all of a sudden, a bunch of executives in suits and briefcases come in. Are you Rick Pavlin? Yes. You don't have any rights whatsoever to use that clip. And it was, luckily, my lawyer was in the editing room. Right. And he said, who are you? Well, we're, we're the, you know, blah, blah, blah from Universal Studios. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you can't use that clip. And uh, my lawyer said, well, I talked to Jim Cameron personally. And uh, he said, fine. And I have a signed piece of paper. And his contract is he controls it, not you. Mm -hmm. They said, well, we can't even use it. Well, okay, but he can. Right. So they said they want to see the piece of paper. So I had an assistant mm -hmm. at the time named Casey. Yeah. So my lawyer gave him the key to his office, said, it's down here, unlock this, do that. So he brought it back and showed it to him. And then they stormed out and everything. But it's <laughs> in my movie and it's it's tremendous. And it was a wonderful gift from Jim Cameron. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, just to kind of summarize our whole conversation. Absolutely. I found that people that are successful at the very top, Sylvester Stallone, Jim Cameron, Talia Shire are the nicest people. Yeah. And are the most supportive and are the most generous. It's getting to those people, it's very difficult. Yeah. It's that whole middle level of people that will try to obstruct you or corrupt you or keep you away from the, the real yeah. talent. So you have to kind of get adept at getting through to talent, finding people. Yeah. And it's a skill Absolutely. and it's not easy and there's no simple answer, but just know that if you're really talented and if you have integrity and passion mm -hmm. and you connect with the right people, people will help you. Right. Like I would, will help people and yeah. other people will help people. And, exactly. You know, it, it, and that's been my experience. And so I'm appreciative. So during the pandemic, I had a lot of time to think about my life. And I kind of thought, well, I didn't have a very good career. And then I thought, wow, I actually have had a pretty interesting career. Yes, you I've have. made a lot of money. I've lived comfortably. I'm now making exactly the films that I want. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with some really, truly amazing people. And, and I thought about that. And when I was a little kid in Flint, Michigan, I loved the TV show McHale's Navy with Ernest Borgnine. Okay. And they made a movie. And he was coming for some weird reason to appear at a drive-in theater. Mm -hmm. And I begged and begged and begged and begged my parents. And I would have done anything to go see Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. So we waited 
the traffic was like a mile long and it was on the news and it was in the newspapers and you know thousands and thousands of people were turned away and they did this appearance for the movie and the whole thing and years later i'm on a sound stage at universal studios yelling action and cut to ernest borgnine directing him in a feature film that's amazing and it was it and then we became friends for about 10 years and we were working on some other films when he died mm -hmm. and it was just this incredible honor to have known him and be his friend yeah and he won an academy award for best actor for marty he made over 250 feature films mm -hmm. he made from here to eternity he made the wild bunch the poseidon adventure I mean, just all of these classic movies, Bad Day at Black Rock, where he gets in a fight with Spencer Tracy. And you look at this and you go, this guy was my friend and I directed a movie and we did a radio show together. There was a, a radio show What's that Universal did. And he went on the radio show and he said, I was one of the top three directors he ever worked with. Or and I have a tape of that. So whenever I start to get down or depressed, sometimes I'll listen to that tape. And it was a tremendous experience working with him and who would have ever thought sitting in that line in in you know flint michigan a mile away can't even get to the front to get in that later that he would be my friend and we would work together and he died and in the new york times obituary it mentioned my film hmm. and i remember at the time thinking this, this just seems unreal to me all of these great films he made in his obituary, and then also in the obituary in the Hollywood Reporter. So in about half the obituaries, it listed his highlights, mm -hmm. and it listed my films, which had opened in theaters, and we had, we had been nominated on the Academy Award ballots, yeah. and he was nominated on the ballot, not the final five, but the first ballot. Okay. And we had, I think, nine nominations. And we opened in theaters in L.A., and we opened in Florida. And he wanted to be a movie star, not a TV star. And so when I went to him, he was very intrigued about doing my movie to prove that he could still act at his age. Yeah. And I gave him that opportunity. And one of the great pieces of advice I have for anybody that wants to be a filmmaker in any capacity. Absolutely. The older stars are terrific, really want to work, will work for a price, and can elevate your film and really help you in distribution. So it's a tremendous opportunity whenever you can find older actors to work with. And I had been developing some stuff with Cliff Robertson. Burt Reynolds did his last film with me. And Burt and I were working on a film. I was writing the treatment to a, um, a script for Burt and I to do when I got the call that he died. Oh. And so, you know, there's always inherent risk. Someone might die, but it's well worth it. And for young filmmakers, to, to reach that audience, some of these older stars and some of their wisdom mm -hmm. is unbelievable. And I look at the life I've led and it's been an incredible life. It really is. Yes. But one last thing, and I was thinking about you today, because let me fill you in, folks. <laughs> 5,000 people tried to get on this podcast. He whittled it down to 100. Then There's we time. auditioned. I really think this is a second audition. I don't think this will be on the podcast. <laughs> but... You know, Marie is really tough. So this is like being on Shark Tank. If you're on right. her podcast, wow. But I think this is just my first callback, second audition. But in case it's not. To be determined. In case this is the end. I wanna, I wanted to, I was thinking about you this morning. And 
In my high school yearbook, I had a quote that I could never find who said it, mm -hmm. but nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And enthusiasm is free. It's infectious. Yes. And it, it raises up all the boats. It raises everybody up and it makes everybody feel great. And Mark Twain had a great quote about only the great ones make you think that you too can be great. Mm -hmm. And in my life, Mark Twain was correct because yeah. the great ones like Ernest Borgnine and Burt Reynolds and Talia Shire and Sylvester Stallone and Jim Cameron, just to name a few, right. were incredibly kind and generous to me, helped me in my career and always returned calls and always did things for me. And that's one of the reasons of many that I want to help other people. Mm -hmm. I want to see your podcast be a huge success. Right. I want your viewers and listeners to have huge success yes. and learn from all of this. And I don't want to ask for anything. I don't want any money from anybody. Please watch my film. You can watch it for free. I can't make it any more accessible than that. Right. But please don't sell yourself out. Always believe in yourself yes. and surround yourself with people who are going to give off positive vibes. And when you run into the people that don't, treat them nice, be kind, but keep them on that outer ring. Mm -hmm. And you really only need about 10 people. Mm -hmm. If you have 10 people that really believe in you and you work with, you're, you're, you can do anything. Yeah. Because everybody else is a higher vendor. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it, it, it's an amazing business. There are lots of people in it, but there's very few people that matter. So yeah. make those connections, be positive, develop your skill set, and bring samples of your work. And if you do that, I guarantee you at some level, you will be a success in this industry Absolutely. and in any industry. I totally concur. I, I mean, I know that you are seeing my, you know, podcast coming to life and, you know, it's, it's totally true to that point, you know, with the enthusiasm, with the hard work I was willing to, you know, surmise in order to create this, you know, I did send my, uh, you know, thank yous and all my gratitude um, towards, you know, my intro to this podcast, but, you know, near and far, I've, I've been to a lot of places and, and I've met a lot of people and, and I'm still going to meet lots of people. I mean, obviously through this podcast, but it goes without saying, like, you know, never would I have thought as a young child that if someone told me, one day you're going to interview Rick Pamplin. First and foremost, I'd be like, who? And then second, it'd be like, really? Why would, why would he want to talk to me? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Michigan, you know, why would, why would another Michigander want to talk to another Michigander when you got out of that state? I mean, to all the people that are still living in Michigan, I love you guys. And I'm, I know that that state is unique for its own, but for the aspirations, both what you have for your life and what I have for mine. It it just goes to show that we have, you know, different locations and and different opportunities that Michigan didn't have to offer us at the time. So well, for me, it was simple. I don't like cold, wet weather. <laughs> that makes too much. It's very simple. I like to. I I my wife tries to keep track at the longest I can go and not wear long pants. Mm -hmm. And usually, it's when we're on a cruise ship and we have to go to formal night. And I have to put on long pants. Yeah. But uh, I like I like. Them much more to wear shorts. I love to be out in the weather every day. Yes. I like sunshine. 
They say that if you live where there's a lot of sunshine, number one, the vitamin D is very good for you. Mm -hmm. But number two, mentally, it makes you much more positive. Absolutely. And I just, I, I grew up shoveling snow. My father died shoveling snow. Mm. And it just isn't, you know, I don't really like snow. Yeah. And when I lived in California, I lived in the, in the Mojave Desert for a while. Mm-hmm. And my son would see out the back of our, our family room. He could see the Angeles Crest Mountains with the snow. And when he was very little, like maybe three, he wanted to go see snow. So yeah. we went out and we got him gloves and, you know, a coat and boots and all this stuff, you know. And we drove all the way up to the top of Angeles Crest Mountains. Mm-hmm. We got out. And we showed him the snow and we tried to make a snowman and we made some snowballs and he said, okay, I've seen enough. Let's go home. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. Wait we a bought second. all these clothes. We're going to go tobogganing. We're going to go slide down the hill. No, dad, it's cold. It's wet. I don't like it. Let's go home. I was like, okay, turn on the heater. Okay. Right. So we all piled back in the car, drove all the way down Angela's Crest, all the way back down you know, through Palmdale back to the desert. Yes. And that was the end of it. And today, my son, who lived in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. uh, now lives in Puerto Rico. So, you know, uh, he lived briefly in New York, and then he went to San Francisco. I think he was in LA for a while. Mm -hmm. Now he's in Puerto Rico. So we're kind of like warm weather people, even though we're Irish, you know, and all that, we just like it. So I love Michigan. It's a beautiful state. Absolutely. Wonderful people. A lot of great things there and I had a lot of fond memories of Michigan but in the end I don't like wet and cold yeah (laughs) I like warm I'm very happy with Florida I like I like the sun too so yeah and Florida's like California but Eisenhower is still president and it rains every day so it's a different situation so people are a little slower it's a little different situation uh and I just like it and we're surrounded by water. It's everywhere. And we love it. And having lived in the desert for five years, mm. where there is no green, and there's mm-hmm. very little water, I love now the the, lop, the, tro- the you know tropical, lush yes. Florida stuff. The humidity. Because the truth is, you live in Los Angeles. Yeah, I do. And, and the truth is, you're living in the middle of a desert, mm-hmm. artificially pretending like there's water. Mm-hmm. Because the water melts down and goes down the aqueduct from the mountains. And you guys steal it from Northern California and other states. So you can live in Los Angeles and water your lawns. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, the truth is you're living in the desert. And it was fun. I liked it for mm-hmm. a while. But uh, I also preferred living on the ocean. And I yeah. like living in different places. It doesn't right. matter anymore where you are. Right. I mean, that's the other thing. People used to have to go to Hollywood. You can live anywhere and make yeah. movies. That's fantastic. And I hear a lot of people on, especially LinkedIn, from mm-hmm. overseas trying to do independent films. And I'm yeah. very encouraging to them. So I think we're going to see some of the greatest movies ever made from independent filmmakers, I people like that. you, people like me, people yeah. like people we know Absolutely. that are going to tell stories that would never have been told under the old business model. Of course. And that's why we have cause for celebration. Absolutely. And don't get too mired down into all of the negative and don't get mired down into the propaganda because most of the stuff written about the movies isn't true mm-hmm. so you really have to get in there and sort of figure yeah, out your yeah. own truth and your own connections sure. and if people do that they can have a life and a career yes i mean it, but it's not easy 
It's a struggle. Mm-hmm. You have to be a student. You have to be aware. And you have to know what you want to say, which is called point of view. If you do that, you're going to be successful. So I'm looking forward to your reel. Yes, I, I, I can't wait to share. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to your first film. Oh, yeah. I think you should go produce a film. You should go make a film. Yeah, no, it's it's going to happen, Rick. You know, <laughs> and then when I'm done with that, I'm going to go visit the ocean. <laughs> good. Good for you. Yes. you know, it's interesting. We spoke at this University of Oregon thing. Yeah. And um, it was really interesting. At the University of Oregon, this was a big seminar in film financing. And Maggie was on and I was on it. Louise was on. So they called me. They, they wrote a letter, University of Oregon. They were very kind. They sent some gifts, no cash, but some gifts mm-hmm. and um, some honorarium type stuff. And it was very nice, very thoughtful. And they asked us if we'd do it again. And we said, sure, we liked it. It was fun. Mm-hmm. And we were interacting with the students like this. Right. Although, you know, they didn't audition me. They just said, hey, you're you're a big deal guy. Yeah. We know who you are. You don't have to audition. Come on, Rick, please. Anyway, I, was, I don't know. <laughs> I guess Oregon's a little different. But anyway, so I did this thing at University of Oregon. And the students were great. It was a give and take and lots of questions. So right. I found out from the guy that hosted it, who's our distributor, that the group actually got together after all of this seminar and the, you know, the the Zoom stuff we did. Yeah. And the whole group is making a film now. They were wow. so inspired by what we were talking about. That's so good. So, I know. So you could also find off your podcast, yeah. you could start recruiting a whole group of people to make your movie hundred percent and people yeah. on your podcast can, can bring pieces of it together for you. So, Absolutely. I mean, there's just so many possibilities. So to me, Endless. this is, this is really an exciting time to be in the movie business, to be a creative person and to master this technology of which of course you've already done. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm finessing it at best, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, it's been such a treat to like, you know, hear your journey and a, and all the walks of life that you've came into contact throughout your career. And I'm so glad and thankful that you have a, a supportive partner, uh, Maggie. She's been very wonderful throughout this conversation and Penny's just chilling in the back, I know. But um, if anything, for anybody who, you know, wants to, you know, see more of your work or, you know, get in contact some way, shape or form, uh, how can how can one do that? Well, I think uh, first go to moviemoney.com, mm-hmm. which there's a, a great deal of information. Uh, you can also sign up for a free newsletter from Louise Levison, who writes about independent film uh, for uh, investors and filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And she'll send you that every month in your email box with lots of information, what's going on at camp, what's going on here. Yes. And if you want to hire her to do a business plan, you can you can contact her uh, for a free consultation yes. and whether you hire her or not. So she's an enormous research. So go to moviemoney.com. Mm-hmm. And then um, Scott DePont, who we mentioned at the beginning, uh, uh, Scott is doing a lot of consulting to help young filmmakers, especially mm-hmm. people I think 2 million or under. He's trying to help them. Right. And I think you can reach him at financialfilm.com. He does a podcast and he, awesome. he's doing consulting to help because you really need a professional person Right. on your first film to guide you through and save so you don't waste all the money you don't make the wrong mistakes exactly and he's a great resource i can be reached on twitter you can follow me and then i try to respond to mm-hmm. all the dms that i can i can also be reached on linkedin mm-hmm. and i i will connect with anybody that wants to and i if i can i'll try to answer your question 
or try to refer you to the right people uh, and try to make as many things happen for people as I can. But I think watch Movie Money Confidential. Mm-hmm. I think you can watch it for free. Yes. Go watch it. You'll learn a lot. A lot of people have said to me they have to watch it a couple of times because it's got a lot of content. It's pretty a lot good. of stuff going yeah. on in that movie. And it's very content heavy. And a lot of resources are, you know, mentioned. And, you know, other resources are your film office. We, we did yeah. a segment in our movie. Exactly. People don't understand that the government gives huge amounts of money to film. Mm-hmm. And you just need to connect with your film office. Yeah. There are also massive numbers of nonprofits that give grants. We did a segment about that. Mm-hmm. You can also go to our friends at productionhub.com. And they are a job listing site. And they list all new movies and they hook people up. And they also, for free, you can subscribe to a newsletter. And they will send you all the new products. They will send you people shooting movies on location. What are their tips? What are the, How do you do this? Yeah. How do you shoot remotely? How do you, you know, they do a fantastic newsletter that's free, productionhub.com. So start putting together, you know, a, a database of all these things that can help your skill set sure. and get your skill set organized so that you have a large number of skills to offer somebody. Mm-hmm. And that will attract other people and that will get you paying jobs. And people that work in the movie business are paid very well, Mm -hmm. very well, much more than any other sector of just normal type jobs that you might do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't always make 10,000 a week, but you do make a lot of money. And, um, you know, it's a highly specialized work. It's like being a doctor or like being a lawyer. And people who know what they're doing will make large sums of money. So I really hope that we don't do another audition because this is a pretty good No, one. no, no. This is not an audition. Okay, okay. And more importantly, when, when you see the final cut, you'll see the final cut. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I believe you. I don't, she's going to put this up and you can vote. So if you can vote yes. for me, I, you know, vote for mine. Exactly. It's going to be like American Idol. I feel like I'm in Shark Tank. I have a friend that went on Shark Tank last Did Monday you? and she has a business. She's in her 20s. And they gave her like three hundred or six hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Three of the five wanted to give her money, which was amazing. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to do, and I'll share this with your audience: go yeah. on Shark Tank. Yeah. You know, because they're they, they always want equity. They want to own ten percent, or right. You know, we'll give you three hundred thousand for ten percent, or something, right? 100%. But you could do a movie for three hundred thousand dollars. They could own fifty percent, right? And there's no overhead. They make the movie. Here's what it is, you know, right. hit it or miss it. So I've always thought about going on Shark Tank. Who would you who would you pick if you had to partner up with somebody? <laughs> what? Who would you pick as a shark if you had to partner with somebody? Oh, I don't know. I, okay. They're all, you know, weird. Okay, but fair. <laughs> I, I think the middle three are the nicest. So I don't. I the, the two on the edges are a little rough. Okay. Mark and the other guy, they seem to say no most most of the time. And Mark was in the movie business, so he probably wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But. But here, here's my point. Yeah. There's so many different ways. Go get grants. Yes. Uh, you know, go go talk to distributors. Go go find different funding sources. Go on Shark Tank. It's a crazy idea, but someday somebody's going to go on Shark Tank and go, I'm going to give you 50% of my business mm-hmm. forever, forever. And and I need $300,000. Right. Well, what is your business? I'm making movies. Yeah. Like in my case, I'd say I've made X millions of dollars 
for other people, I'd like to now make it for you and me. Yeah. Let's make a movie together. See, I'm talking myself into this. So I'll be on Shark Tank soon. Okay, but, great. <laughs> but, but the, I, I don't need Shark Tank now because I have funding and distribution. But mm -hmm. it's an interesting idea. If I was a young person, and I mean yeah. this very sincerely, yeah, go on Shark Tank. They give they gave my friend who's in her 20s like three hundred thousand dollars in 20 minutes. That's crazy. Like, it's like, and she has a great idea and she has a company and all that stuff. But it, it, movies are a better opportunity because you don't have all that overhead. You don't have to right. worry about the percentage. If you give them three hundred thousand and they make a movie and it makes ten million dollars. <laughs> Even if the distributor takes a third, mm -hmm. you're going to get $7 million divided in half. Oh, he, we took your 300,000. We made 3.5 you know, 3. million. Yeah. Yeah. Back. But then it keeps coming because you get all the ancillary and all the other things. Movies are a great investment if the people Super making true. the movie know what they're doing. Yeah. No, so. that's, that's such, such great sound advice throughout. And, you know, like these are great resources. So, if you all haven't been taking notes, um, feel free to go back through and, you know, write down these resources. Um, it's been a huge honor to be able to, you know, have a conversation with another fellow Michigander. Who would have thought? And here we are. We're living in different states, but we're living out our lives. I know. I know you've been living out yours, and I feel like I'm just catching my stride and getting things going. So, yeah, when that uh, when that script comes to life, and I'm be able to get your point of view uh rick i would love to be able to share that with you as well all right i look awesome. forward to a, a lifelong relationship and thanks for the audition absolutely you're so welcome so thank you everyone who's been tuning into this hard fire podcast we appreciate you all we love you all and we appreciate the ongoing support may you all have a wonderful wonderful week day month year <laughs> take care